Hello, we are the makers of history. With me, Foz, and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello. And welcome to episode three of season two of our podcast. What's going on, bruv? What do you know? Yeah, good, man. Uh, just got back off my summer holidays. Mm. Refreshed and relaxed. Yeah, yeah. Talks all about it. Where'd you go? Who'd you see? And what do you know about the poop you saw? <laughs> yeah, so I went to... Um, Lake Balaton in Hungary, which for anyone not familiar, it's this big, massive fuck off lake. And the thing about it is, it's really shallow. So, like, even hundreds of meters from the shore, it's like two foot deep. So, you walk around like Jesus on top of the water. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, I was doing a lot of day drinking, a lot of daytime langosh, a lot of giros. It was a good time. Oh, nice, man. Very <laughs> good. Feeling porky now, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm officially yeah. a fat bastard now. I wonder why that is, why it's so shallow. Like, what's the you know geographical, ecological, like a... um, stereotypical? That's the only word <laughs> I can think of reasons that make it. Like, yeah, that's weird, don't you think it evaporates yeah, yeah. quicker? It's that shallow. Yeah, it's like the areas are like volcanic. So, like at the bottom of the lake, it's all like black volcanic sand. Um, but as to why it's so shallow, don't know. Oh, okay, fair enough then. <laughs> How about you? How are you? Uh, pretty good, mate. Yeah, pretty good. My second week of my new job is finished because we are recording this on Friday the 1st of September. Uh, so, yeah, finished my last, my second full week at my new job. Enjoying it. It's good. Uh, waking up early is killing me, but apart from that, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm really enjoying it, though. They've been really good to me, so, yeah, I'm having a good time. Um, what else is going on? Extension's going well. Uh, foundations are in. Up to nice. the brickwork, you know, they've just started putting the first cut, uh, lot of bricks down, so the extension's finally taking shape, which is nice. And yeah. I'm a lord of the manor now. Yeah, I've just, it's been a while, I've had a good week, busy yeah. week, but I've had a good week, it's been fantastic. What are you supping on there? I see you having all drinky poos, what, what you got? So this one I have a, it's from Beskidski Pivafar. Who are they? So... This is from like some obscure microbrewery in the eastern part of Czech. Oh, nice. Um, basically, my wife was uh, went with her friends to Beskidi, which is this mountain area. It kind of stretches from Poland through Czech all the way across through Slovakia to Ukraine. So she's in these mountains, and she'd brought this back from some tiny brewery there that's like, you know, four guys and a goat working in it. Oh, nice. It is both unfiltered and unpasteurized. Very good. And how's it taste? Uh, it's hoppy. It's like. I struggled to get a head gun on, like you you can see that obviously the listeners yeah. can't, but that's pretty flat for a Jack Beer. Um that's alright, it's decent. Nice. I like a happy drink to be fair. What have you got? Are you Well, mix and matching a bit today. So the first drink that I had what did I have for my first one? Oh, I had a bottle of uh, Hobgoblin. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hobgoblin's like a, a good British ale. It's very dark. It's classed as a ruby beer, so it's not sparkling. It's flat. Uh, chocolate malt. Chocolate malt. I'd probably say is a word to describe it. I'm not looking <laughs> at the bottle. I don't read it off the bottle, but that's what I describe it. I'm pretty sure they describe it as a chocolate. Yeah, rich chocolate in crystal malts. It's a great beer. I've been drinking this since before I was legally allowed to drink beer. To <laughs> it's lasted. It's been around for ages, and I've been drinking this shit since young age. Good stuff, man. It's nice. Five percent ruby. It's a ruby colour. Very nice. I finished that one a month. I'm halfway through my second. I got a bottle of Newcastle Brown Ale now. 
Nice. That's a retro classic. Yeah. So I didn't realise what a lot of these. Well, obviously these don't contain weight. Obviously that's what I'm thinking okay. of. Didn't know that. Uh, but yeah, Newcastle Brown Arts, very classic British drink from Newcastle. Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> Newcastle Brown Ale is really good though. It's just a good like very mild drink. But it's nice. Don't think I've ever drunk it. I mean, like, it, it's probably not saying much for the drink when you like you, know, you describe it. You're like, yeah, it's brown. Yeah, it's brown ale. <laughs> Goes in brown, comes out brown. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel I feel like the dragon soup sponsorship has fallen through right here. Oh You've no, I'll be, I'll be back options. on them. Yeah, to be fair, I've discovered there's better options. Pretty planning. <laughs> But that's the downfall. It's the pre-planning that fucks things up. So I can only go get these from the supermarkets. I can't nip over to the shop over the road and get them. <laughs> They've got an exclusive dragon soup deal. Yeah, yeah. And then they've also got a nice uh, bottle of Guinness as well, knocking around somewhere. But it's the classic Guinness. You know, the original Guinness. Extra stout. Uh, sounds like a little picture up to you. Very nice. Very got the classic one, which is nice. So yeah, I've got a good selection to be completely honest. I'm actually bossed out on drink options. Yeah, impressive. There we go. <laughs> um, so yeah, what we're gonna what we're gonna know and episode three now. So we're into the heart of things. Talk to me, Ross. Teach All me right, things. So yeah, so last week then we or last time rather we talked about like Nazi ideology and their beliefs. And uh, spoiler alert, there was a lot of stuff about Jews in there, and a lot of kind of wacky sort of conspiracy thinking and it sounds really strange but i think you to understand the rest of the series you need to understand that they took these conspiracy theories really seriously and it informs everything yeah they're proper whack jobs aren't they from from day dot they're you know they're they're fully sold on this yeah yeah. crazy wacky ideas so like the their whole worldview only makes sense if you've like take all these like conspiracy theories and you completely believe them yeah because a um, lot of the moves, obviously, don't want to push too far forward, like, but a lot of the decisions they make don't make a lot of sense at some points, you know. Yeah, if you like looking at things like rationally, purely rationally, like later on, a lot of stuff they do makes no sense. But if you're looking at it through this, like, worldview where you believe that you're locked in a race war and the Jews control everything, if you're fully sold on that conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. then there's kind of at least the rationality to it. Yeah. Which, for anyone who's outside of that, is like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Yeah. <laughs> rationalising. Uh... So, basically, what we're saying is we can rationalise uh, Hitler's thinking. I think it's like... Yeah, I think you can, say you can understand where a person's coming from without necessarily saying you're on board with it. Oh, definitely, yeah. But these yeah, people but... also like worship the occult, we have to remember as well. So there's, there's kind of like... I think there's sort of like three different main strands within Nazism. On one hand, you have like a sort of really like German nationalism, which I think is kind of the easiest part to kind of wrap your head around. And with that would be like people like Goering, and their interest mm. is like a big, strong Germany. Obviously, all of them are anti-Semitic, all of them are bad, but some of them are kind of more easy to comprehend than others. Yeah. Yeah, it's and easy then, to uh, understand a big, fat German is racist. You can yeah, understand that. Like, yeah, Germans are the best, I'm the best, obviously... Everyone else is bad. It's not exclusive That's... to Germans, by the way. Anybody can. Yeah, that. no. Yeah, yeah. Like a Goering could be from any country. Yeah. And you can apply the the thing. Then you have like the occult, wick, wacky, mystical side, like Himmler, 
where it's all about like you know like these racial ancestry and speaking to long dead kings and all this sort of stuff and like all cult of the levels, cult level stuff. Yeah, all of this like Return to Castle Wolfenstein bullshit. Yeah, which is what they were doing though. Like the SS were doing all of this weird role playing as knights in a castle stuff. This gets quite weird. And then Hitler, sometimes he's like very like German nationalistic, but other times he's like this sort of weird anarchist sort of attitude. He doesn't actually care about the Germans at times, he just cares about race war. Mm. And it's like, a point his fingers like, yeah, we're going to have a race war. We need to get rid of the Jews because they're stopping there being race war. And then we'll have a fight, Germans versus Slavs, and we see who's best. And if the Slavs win, then well, they're the, then the master race. Yeah. And it's like, that's not really a German patriotic thing. That's just a man who wants a race war. Yeah. It's a, like you said, you, to rationalise any of this, like to really understand the decisions that made, you have you got to understand the fucking off his... He's off his nut, ain't he? Basically, <laughs> that is well off his nut. Yeah. Are we, I mean, skip, wasn't... Have we, are we mentioning his drug use? We've mentioned that. We haven't got to the drug use oh, yet. Okay. We'll talk about that then. We'll get to that especially like later in the war when it starts ramping up. But even from the start, like even in the like the twenties when he's he's most like sharp and canny as political operator, the guy's worldview is deeply fucking disconnected to reality. Mm. And there's a lot of stuff that he does as leader which he's not getting the responses he wants because he doesn't understand why reality isn't working in the way he would like it to. Because he's so wrapped up in his own thought process, he's, yeah. Yeah. He just can't comprehend how other people see what he's doing. It's mad that people who lead countries can be that insane, and it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like you, to end up leading a country, you have to kind of be like that because normal people don't wake up and like today I'm <clears> gonna <throat> overthrow the government. <laughs> yeah, just wake up one day and like I want to run everything. I want to be responsible for everything. <laughs> yeah. That'll so be... where we left it then last time? So um. Uh, so Hitler gets brought into power through these sort of backroom machinations and then the German parliament, the Reichstag, kind of conveniently burns down. Hitler and the Nazis immediately scream, oh, it must be a communist uprising. They take emergency powers and then we have a Nazi dictatorship. So this is where where we left it. So what Hitler inherits then when he comes into true power, he's got a Germany which has been in like a deep economic crisis coming out of 1929 so we're now in 1933 big economic crisis six to seven million people unemployed in a country that's about 70 million people i think at this time wow right it's incredible say them numbers again so yes six to seven million people unemployed out what's that like 10 percent percent fuck so yeah that's like comparable to like you know spain or italy during uh the last you know, 20 years. Yeah, but Germany? You don't expect yeah. that from Germany. It's Germany, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's... I so they... A so. lot of unemployment. A lot of hardship. We mentioned there was, like, hardship in the countryside. One of the things that happens in Germany is the way that they um, inherit land, they always split it between the sons. So what happens is the farms get smaller and smaller to the point where the farmers can't support the farmer and his family. Mm. So they have this real crisis going on in the countryside. But not everything is bad. It's four years after the Wall Street crash. There are signs of things ticking up. The balance of trade, i.e. how much is sold versus how much is brought in, this is positive. They are exporting more than they're importing. So the country is making money. and the oh, country so that's, that is, that's, that's doing okay then? Yes. They're selling more than they're bringing in. 
And the, there's kind of a cash reserve that the previous governments have built up. There is money there to use. There's also kind of some sort of side benefits. So one thing we mentioned in the first two episodes is that Germany has all of this debt, right? Because they used American debt to pay off their war punishment fees. War reparations by now are out the, out the window. They've been written off. So reparations don't come into this at all at this point. Okay. But they do still have all of this debt to the Americans. But in 1933, the US goes through a second financial panic and the dollar collapses in value. This means if you have a whole bunch of debt that's you know, denominated in dollars and the value of the dollar has collapsed, that debt is suddenly not as expensive anymore. Well, yeah, because then obviously their value against your currency is going to massively drop. So Yeah, exactly. So in this case, their debt situation is actually improving. Okay. So is this where they get the idea that Hitler was a great economist from? So this is what we're going to talk about today. We're going to look at the first two years of the Nazis in power, before the war, before the escalation. We're going to look at the Nazis on their own merits as a peacetime government. And we'll look at this idea, was Hitler a successful governor? Was Hitler a great economist, like you just say? And we're going to look at a few different factors to see... Does this hold up, basically? So, when the Nazis have taken power, like, the Nazis... People knew what the Nazis were. Like, they were openly anti-Semitic. They had, like, a uniformed street militia out in the streets fighting communists, fighting liberals, and so on. People knew what they were. Society has to try and deal with them. And first of all, there's kind of an attempt to try and integrate the Nazis into day-to-day life. Um... Kind of one of the weirdest ones is the unions. So obviously the unions, very left-wing socialist. They try to connect with the Nazis on the like, oh, we're both for the working man. And on May the 1st, 1933, they have shared workers' parades, like Nazis and unions together. Wow, that's a a smart move, getting the unions on board. Well... An industrial contra. Yeah, so I I mean, this is more the unions kind of selling out their principles to try and keep some power. Because what happens then on the 2nd of May is that the Nazi militias go into the Union offices, shut everything down, impound the money, lock everybody up. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) So they shut down the unions? Yep, the next day after their shared march. Wow. So they shut down the offices, they seize all of the Union's money, and they create a new single... German Union, the Deutsche Arbeitsfront. <laughs> That's like completely the opposite of a union. So it's yeah. really like having one single government controlled union. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fucking hell. And of course, as you might expect, they fill it with Nazis at the Who top the fuck is turning around? I mean, like, yeah, that is a good idea. <laughs> like, who the fuck's doing that? Like, I feel like the union just really miscalculated what was going to happen. Massively, yeah. <laughs> But, so, you know, Germany's coming out of time economic hardship, and Hitler and the Nazis realise they have to have results to show for it. Germany, like, stops being a democracy at this point, but obviously, like, people don't just suddenly switch off their brains. Like, they they have a point of comparison. Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister, he is fully aware that in the first year, the Nazis must have economic results to show. After that, then they what, can just... What, mass- hang on, hang on. What, how does he know that? Because he's thinking, like, in terms of having popular acceptance. 
If the Nazis can, for the first year, be producing results, they've got it in the bag. Because after that point, they've got, like, you know, full capture of the and institutions. what was his role at the, by the end of the this game? What was his role? So he's the propaganda minister. He's the guy who's the... He's the one who makes the, the films and that. The films, the radio, yeah, all of this. Yeah, okay. So he's like, okay, I'm following. Yeah, he's the little scrawny, dark-haired yeah, yeah, yeah. Know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. I know who so, he is now. Yeah, so his full thing is that they must have something solid to show by the end of the first year. So what they're going to do is they're going to do a whole bunch of work creation. So creating jobs, using government spending to get people back into work. Um, and I mean, this has been the thing that people kind of think of with the Nazis, like, oh, they got everyone back into work. I don't so, think everyone thinks that. Um, <laughs> no. But, well, you know, it's, it's like, you know, the popular opinion, oh, yeah, Hitler in the 30s got everyone back into work. Asking random people on the street, so I've seen about Hitler, well, he got a lot of people back into work. You know what? You know what? I was having a social media interaction this morning on the Twitter and there was literally someone there was something about Mussolini and someone a guy was like, Yeah, but he did a lot of good things. And you're like you got how was that your opinion in this year of our Lord twenty twenty three? Yeah. So yeah, Mussolini did good things. He introduced the pinata to Europe. Oh great. <laughs> to be fair, it looked when he's got his chin up like that, you know, the yeah. pictures where his like, chin's bulging at the seams. <laughs> like, if your chin had seams, his would be bulging. It's That's like three chins you. in one, it's impressive. It's a lot of chin, but it's not like a fat chin. It's no, like... It's just a big chin. Such, I think that's probably where he got to where he got to. Yeah, to be fair, like... He's got a magic chin, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, if Keir Starmer was like there on a balcony doing... Yeah, massive chin. chin poses, yeah. Yeah, I'd be marching on London, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd be marching on Italy. But... <laughs> Sorry, please continue. Um, yeah, so they have all these cash reserves they've inherited from the Weimar Republic. Um, and what they decided to do, they take one billion Reichsmarks. So we said uh, pre-kind of crash values, that's $4, four Reichsmarks to the dollar. So it's like $250 million in 1930s money. A lot of money. Yeah, for the sense of time, a lot of money. So they have one billion rice marks, and they're going to use this for job creation. And they make a test case in East Prussia. And they come up with all of these plans. They're going to get more land under the plough. They're going to have infrastructure projects. And after seven months, East Prussia has effectively zero unemployment. Very impressive. Nazi propaganda makes a huge deal about this. Goebbels is running this on everything. East Prussia, no unemployment. Now, the thing is, East Prussia was extremely backwards and underdeveloped. It was an agricultural region of Germany. It's very easy to round up a whole bunch of blokes and have them start digging roads. Yeah, yeah, of course it is. So, for one thing, you could very quickly get results in East Prussia, which you couldn't get if you went into, say, like, I don't know, like Cologne, where the factories are closing down. That's a bigger problem. So easy to round up, easy to solve. Second, they are chucking huge amounts of money at East Prussia. East Prussia contained 1% of the unemployed population. So proportionally, they were spending crazy money for the sounds propaganda like, value. It sounds like they calculated that. Yes. Like, how much money can we chuck at the smallest number of people to get a state which is clean? Yeah. 
throughout the country, they would do things like they were... The famous thing is, of course, building the Autobahn through Germany, the highways. But there wasn't really much economic benefit to doing it. Hitler's thinking with building the Autobahn is this is convenient for moving soldiers around. Uh, yeah, and, that makes sense. You know, people would like say, oh, the Autobahn's very impressive. People working. It's like, yeah, you can do this if you literally round up all of the single men, force them into labour camps, send them to the other side of the country and make them build roads. Yeah. yeah, you can get rid of unemployment if you do that. Yeah. Big lessons sort of measure- learnt from this podcast. <laughs> if we want to end unemployment. Build roads. Yeah. <laughs> and these sort of things are very effective in the countryside. The countryside full of, you know, like, manual labourers. And space. To and space. Better. In the cities, a bit more complex. Like, mm. if you've got a production chain making parts which then get sold to another country, it gets sold, made something else... Way more complex to solve. Oh, and yeah. The Nazis' solution was, we're not going to do anything about it. It's we're going to focus on the propaganda value of just bringing numbers down. The main thing, though, is that into 1934 they got that unemployment figure down from the six seven million down to four million. That yeah million. okay. So Nazi propaganda for a full twelve months could hammer on this. And by that point, after 1934, like the propaganda has completely captured the media, the Nazis' control of the institutions, there's no longer a possibility for a domestic um, like peacetime opposition. Mm. But to be fair, that's, that's, that's a lot of reduction in um, unemployment. Mm. So it's, it's an easy number. sell, isn't it? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But categorically, from 1934 onwards... The Nazis do not care about the German economy except for what the German economy can do in terms of rearming. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, unemployment is never a top concern of the Nazis again. And this is an important thing. So even in 1934, what, five years before the war starts, one year into Hitler's rule, already the only concern is rearming. Now... Mentioned last time, one of the things that the Nazis come about is kind of like a reaction to the standard of living and quality of life in America. So, like, you know, German people go to the cinemas, they see how Americans live, they go back to their shit hovel and their, like, pile of kids and dirt, and they're comparing their life. Yeah, exactly. And if you're Hitler or you're Goering, who believe in the innate superior to the German people, it's not acceptable, right? So they took various actions to try and improve the quality of life. Where does that like belief of German superiority come from? Do you think it's the Prussianness? Um, I don't. You know what I'm saying. The Prussianness. Yeah. I don't mean Prussian people. What I'm saying is like the whole Prussian military complex sort of situation. Do you think it comes from there? Or was it more like because the Aryan idea? I never really understood why that was. When Germans are like Saxons like us, they look like us, we've all got dark hair, most of us have. Yeah. So I mean like it comes from like these sort of wacky pseudo histories that come up in the late nineteenth century. Um and they're sort of again it kind of mixes in with lots of occult thinking and this sort of stuff. So this idea of like ancient peoples that vanished. So the Aryans supposed to be like an ancient people that vanished and Atlanteans and all this sort of stuff. It's Oh, so that's where the Atlanteans went then. Exactly. From their previous but, series, okay. But this is this is a thing. Like in the late nineteenth century, people were like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, obviously there's ancient races from thousands of years before, and that's how uh, you have these things." Okay. And also, like, the late nineteenth century was racist as fuck. 
everyone oh, yeah. believed their race was superior. Um, you see it as well, like, you know, there's there were British people who talked about the inherent superiority of the Anglo-Saxon race oh, course, in, in yeah. the US. And you similarly, like, you know, the French thinkers who believe in the superiority of the French, Italians who believe in the superiority of the Italians, so on. Um, so basically, the 19th century... power like he did, though. <laughs> yeah. So the 19th century, late 19th century was just very racist, and then that mystic occult side of Nazism is buying into like ideas about Hyperboreans and Aryans and Atlanteans, like ancient vanished races that were super mystical and powerful. Okay. Um, it's it's like super off topics. I don't want to get too much into it, but they had this whole like pseudo history of like complete fucking bullshit and nonsense. But they they bought into it. Is there any? Just a little quick one. Is there any explanation why Hitler was fighting so much for the Aryan race when he was dark-haired? And... Um, I think people like, take does he, ex- a... does he ever have an excuse for that? I think people take it a little bit too much literally about the hair. Like, the Aryan ideal is blonde, blonde oh, hair. Oh, okay. But it's not to say all blonde hair people are Aryan and only Aryan Oh, okay. It's like an ideal. Because, like, yeah, I don't... Like, looking at the senior Nazis, like the front bench... Hitler, dark hair. Goebbels, Goering, Himmler. Like, you have to get that to, like, the B-League of, like, Heydrich before yeah. you get to a blonde Nazi. Uh, but it's kind of an ideal. More yeah. than, like, a, we exclusively represent this. And I'm sure Hitler would no doubt put it down to evil Jews making the races mixed and <laughs> yeah, the Aryan blood. For sure, that's how he mm. would have put it. <laughs> um... That crazy old Hitler. That wacky Hitler, what's he like? What's he going to do next? (laughs) Anyway, so one of the things the Nazis get into is trying to raise quality of life. Now, our man Goebbels, who we've already mentioned, for him, the kind of the key technology of the early 20th century is the radio. Radios are a luxury item in 1933. Only one in four German households own a radio. And the average price is about 100 Reichsmarks, which is expensive at the time. Goebbels, however, sees the immense propaganda value of the radio, of the words of the party and the leader being in your house every day. So, I think him. Yeah, if Goebbels is an incredibly intelligent and brilliant propagandist. Mm-hmm. Like, deeply weird and messed up guy, but brilliant at what he did. So immediately in 1933, Goebbels has a meeting with the radio manufacturers of Germany, and they're going to produce a new special radio called the VE301. And that's going to be sold um, cheaply to the German public. It's going to be sold at a face value of 7 Reichsmarks 25. And then installment payments um, of 5 Reichsmark a time. Just under 5 Reichsmark. Makes it much more affordable to the German public. So instead of paying 100 up front, you pay 7 and then you have monthly installments. 18 installments. 18 installments of 4.4 Reichsmarks. So quite well, a lot, but at least you get a payment plan with it. Yeah, exactly. It's like exactly the same way you end up like people get stuck on credit cards because it looks good as an option up front. Mm-hmm. Um, and by 1938, 70% of German urban households, so city, de- city dwellers, would have a radio. Okay. In 1938, they introduced an even cheaper version, and by the end of the war, virtually every German family would have a radio. The cheapest ones were only able to connect to the propaganda channels. (laughs) 
So no. he's just, you know, all Hitler, all day. Yeah. <laughs> 24-7 Hitler. Strap in. <laughs> like proper, like, local radio. <laughs> 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 but in this one, the, this was kind of a success for the German. For the, for the Nazis, they were able to bring this luxury item, they were able to bring it to the people, and basically everyone would have a radio eventually. The other kind of more pressing issue to raise quality of living for people is housing. There had long been a shortage of house, houses in, and homes in Germany. Like, if you think, Germany had started rapidly industrialising in the last third of the 19th century. People start streaming into the cities, people are coming quicker than houses can be built, right? By 1933, there's a shortage of one to two million homes in Germany. Now, part of the reason that the problem doesn't solve itself, because you think if you have so much demand, then you would like build more houses and the market would kind of fix itself, right? But the reason this doesn't happen is when they have their economic crisis in the early 1920s, the government introduced rent controls. They fixed the price of rent to prevent people being thrown out when everything goes wrong in the 1920s. This, in turn, made being a landlord an unappealing business, and it discourages house building. So there's a kind of continuing shortage of homes because of this. The Weimar government's solution had been tax the landlords, on the basis that when the currency collapsed in 1923, all of the mortgages the landlords had had been wiped out. So they basically got their homes and that they were renting for nothing. Ah, nice. So it makes sense, this one. So they taxed the landlords, and then they would use that money for state-subsidised house building. And at its peak, they were collecting 1.2 billion Reichsmark a year for building new homes. The problem is, even with this, it was still the houses being built were too expensive for most of the population. In the cities, people were subdividing their homes and they were subletting. One in six apartments in Germany had lodgers. And it's not just like one random guy staying as a lodger. It was like families of three or more people subletting inside of an apartment. There were 400,000 families subletting from someone else. That's madness. That That's a massive um, housing crisis. Yeah. You've got... We've got a housing crisis here in the UK, to be completely fair, haven't we? Like, we've had the housing crisis in the UK for about 15 years, it feels like. like it's always in the news, like, oh, there's a housing crisis. It's yeah. always like houses are mad expensive for what they are. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, the UK, you're not the, quite there having a family of four people, like sub-rent, sublet. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, like, kids can't buy houses, can they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can imagine, so like, in the UK. we consider that a crisis and compare what Germany was going through. Yeah, it's like, they weren't just a crisis of houses. Like, when you got a house, you have about 20 other people living in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so you have this huge overloading in the, house, in the housing market and you have people who can't get into even subletting and they're building shantytowns on the edge of cities trying to get near somewhere where they can work. So Hitler comes in, he sees this problem, he sees Weimar's solution of the subsidised building, and he decides that he's going to end the subsidised building. So he comes up with a... He comes up with a new plan. And the new one is... Is this the four-year plan? 
No, four-year plan, that's more of a Soviet thing. Oh, no, on Hearts of Iron 4, there's a four-year plan. Oh, I've no idea. Or six-year plan. There's five-year okay. plans of the Soviets, but maybe there's a four-year plan of the Nazis, but oh, it's okay. not this. Oh, sorry. sorry anyway. Please continue. <laughs> Do you think you are coming in interrupting my monologue? <laughs> <laughs> no, so he comes up with a new plan. And this is going to be, they're going to spend 650 million Reichsmark, so that's, you know, two-thirds of their job creation budget equivalent. They're going to spend it just on renovating and rebuilding apartments. Mostly making them smaller so it's easier to sublet them. Oh, okay. But obviously rather this than, is... Rather than building more, this is yes. a cheaper option. Exactly. Doing it on the cheap. Doing them up a bit, but knocking down the size so you can cram more people. Mm-hmm. So this is the first step. The second plan, and this one's much more rooted in Nazi ideology, is settlement. They're going to build new settlements, new towns, new villages. And they had a whole plan for this that would stretch into the 1980s, building new towns that had nice names like Hitlerberg, <laughs> and they had like new planned settlements coming along. Oh yeah, I'd love to live there, Hitlerberg. <laughs> that neighbourhood. Now the thing with this is, this was done even more half-arsedly than the renovation. They spent less than 200 million on it, through the entirety of Nazi Germany's existence. And the houses that were being built were of such poor quality, you could not get a mortgage for them. The banks were like, no, we're not going to take a risk on that. They had no electricity, no running water, and they had no sewage because the Nazis assumed that you would use your human waste to fertilise the crops that you're growing in your new village. (laughs) Bravo. Ridiculous fucking idea. <laughs> oh, come on, Nazis. I thought you were doing all right for a little bit. I was like, yeah, what? These Nazis are not too bad. Oh, and you just fucking ruin it for me. <laughs> this corn's delicious. It tastes <laughs> of dad's shit. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> nutty. <laughs> fucking hell. What a ridiculous... Oh, like, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, on what level does anyone think that's a great idea? If you know it, I know by now standards. Like, yeah. Obviously, it's different. But... There was electricity back then, and that yeah. was normal. Every home had electricity, or most yeah. homes had electricity. The majority would say. I bet there's still yeah, some countryside nothingness that is shanty house. For sure, like towns and cities had power. Yeah, it's just like how wow. disconnected they are, and also like how disconnected they are from farming. I mean, I'm not a farmer, but I'm pretty sure using human shit to fertilize the crops is a bad fucking idea, because yeah. that's like mm, taste of cholera. Wow, little little taste of tip for you here. Go on. Meat-eating animals, anything that eats meat, makes terrible fertiliser because really? of the types of bacteria that's left in the stall. So you have to leave it out for a lot longer before you can use it on crops. So that's why, like, cows and that, their shit's great, and horses, mm-hmm. because they eat vegetables, they don't eat any meat. But when you eat meat, there's, like, extra shit that comes out in your stall, so you have to, like, leave it for a lot longer before you use it. Ah, I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Yeah. So yeah, that's why you don't use human shit to fertilise the countryside. Yeah. Despite the best efforts of the, like, the British government at the moment to try that. Well, all we seem to be doing is fucking fill it rivers full of that shit. <laughs> and it, like, oh, this river's too clean. Let's fill it full more shit. Don't start, <laughs> don't start me on the river and fucking sewage system, <laughs> mate, because you know the troubles I've had with our local authority. With water. <clears throat> yep. Uh, so, I, don't, I don't want seven Trent to fucking sue me but you've been fucking horrible and you're a pack of cunts that's like where we'll leave it 
<laughs> yeah, they can't see me on the same country. Seven Trent, Rebecca comes. <laughs> Alright, so, when the, you know, shockingly this scheme kind of failed to gain traction, mm. they came up with plan number three. And this is basically to get back to exactly where Weimar was and they go for state-built apartment complexes. Oh, okay. The key thing is they have to be affordable to the German worker and they should be modern. You know, Goebbels has this idea of like, you know, American style convenience for the German master race. Problem is making them affordable to what is still a developing country, in effect. It'll be interesting when we get to the bit when, you know, America does join the war and stuff, because they seem to idolize the American way of living quite a lot. Yeah, Americans had like you know the two car family. They had a, you know, a working man of you know a working man at the Ford plant would keep a family of four or five, have a house, have a car, everything. Europeans yeah. didn't even get close to this. Like especially like central like people of the continent, it's unimaginable like wealth. Well, Americans that's imaginable had. now to be honest, because one man working in a car plant in the UK could not support a family. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it would struggle to, do you know what I mean? It's... Yeah. So, I mean, it, it was a real... They were living a life of luxury. They were living yeah. the dream. <laughs> so, Goebbels wanted the German people to have this sort of luxury on like in a European context. The thing is, the workers are not being paid that much. It's not like, you know, Henry Ford paying his workers enough to buy the cars. It's a developing country. To make the uh, the apartments affordable, they had to keep driving the cost down. So these, you know, state-provided apartments, eventually they would have no hot water, no heating. Uh, they would have electricity only for the lighting, not for appliances. The floor space would be approximately 40 metres square for the entire apartment, which is like a 120-foot square. Yeah, it's not a lot. Not a lot. And even with all of this cost-saving... For it to be viable, the rent was still double what the average German worker could afford to pay in rent. And in the entire existence of Nazi Germany, less than 120,000 of these flats were ever built. Okay. So all of these things which are like Hitler trying to improve the life of German people, all of them are colossal failures. Nothing achieves it's anything. It's colossally shit ideas as well. That's the problem. Yeah, the terrible ideas from the start. They're just unrealistic ideas. Yeah. Is the problem. That's what you get when you keep reading the fucking Book of the Dead or whatever fucking weird <laughs> stuff he was into. <laughs> but this is the thing, like, Hitler himself did not care that much about the German people and their living conditions. All he cared about was, can they make tanks? Mm. And can they make guns? And if you're willing to sacrifice everything else on that metric, then sure, you can have an impressive economy until it collapses. <laughs> So, we mentioned already, the economy they inherited, it had its problems, but it also had like kind of some green shoots of recovery, let's say. They were exporting about 4.8 billion Reichsmark of stuff and importing 4.2 billion of stuff. Importantly, what they were importing was raw material, and what they were exporting was manufactured goods. They are importing things like meat, milk, fats and animal feed, and also... Um, the input goods for their industry. So textiles need depend uh, imported um, cotton. Germany does not produce cotton. They need iron coming from Scandinavia, especially from Sweden. 
but then they're making that into manufactured goods and selling it. So there's like a value add from what the German economy is doing. Yeah, there's like they, they process it and then add value onto the art. Yeah. And you know, having imports, it's a, having like lots of imports, having more imports, it's a good sign. It means your economy has vitality. The production industries are doing something, they're demanding more imports. So it's kind of a good sign. German exports then are being bringing in foreign currency. They're selling their goods, they're bringing back dollars, they're bringing back pounds, they're bringing back francs. And then when they have this foreign currency, it has to do two things. It has to pay for imports. So you, you, you're earning your dollars back and then you're buying your iron ore from Sweden with dollars rather than Reichsmarks. And it also has to pay Germany's debt. Now, we said before that the collapse of the dollar had helped with the debt situation because it made the debts less valuable, right? Mm -hmm. But the flip side is it made Germany less competitive because American product is selling cheaper than German because the dollar is worth less. Yeah. If you're exporting, having a low-value currency is a good thing. And the result is, you know, the Nazis had inherited a budget surplus and so on, by the summer of 1943, they have burned through half of the currency reserves that they inherited. And they are hemorrhaging money now at this point. They have a choice. They can use that foreign currency to pay for the imports, or they can pay the debts. What they do is they announce, we are going to pay debts in Reichsmarks. Your American creditors do not want Reichsmarks, but America's in real trouble. What are they going to do? Yeah. And in 1933... Germany ultimately defaults on the loans and says we will no longer pay the debt we owe. And in October of 1933, they withdraw from the League of Nations. They're like the proto-UN. Yeah. Their first oh, wow. really big kickback against like the international order. We will not pay our debts. We will reject the international order as it is. That's a ballsy move as well, isn't it, to do yeah. that? Because like, what the ramifications could be of that move are massive... Obviously, what the ramifications of them were. Different story. Probably what the UN. It's like UN now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I know we keep slagging off the UN, but they're fucking shit at their job. Yeah, pretty like. useless, yeah. <laughs> but yes, exactly what you say. So, the head of the army, von Blomberg, and. What's his uh, name? Von Blo Werner von Blomberg. That's a funny name. There's Blomberg. a lot of Werners in this episode. Yeah, or Blomberg. So, Blomberg and Goering, they expect a military response. They start drawing up plans for, like, digging trenches in in Berlin. They think there's going to be an invasion for this. Nothing happens. Kind of the big factor that stops anything happening is that France is being ripped apart by, like, fascist street violence. Like, communists and fascists fighting in the streets. And France is in no position to do anything. Like, you know, 1923, when the Germans start fucking with the debts and the reparations... The French army rolls in. Ten years later, France can't do it Not anymore. capable. And this brings us to where the Nazis want to get to the whole time, which is rearming. So, the, Weimar, uh, the, sorry, the Versailles Treaty had limited the size and capabilities of the Weimar Republic's military, right? It limited the army to 100,000 men. It ruled out certain weapons... Hitler felt that this was like a personal insult and Germany must rearm. In June of 1933, so like five months after coming to power, there is a meeting between uh, Hermann Goering and also a guy named Erhard Milk, who is the head of the air ministry. 
Werner von Blomberg, who we just mentioned, who is the Defence Secretary, and a guy named Helmar Schacht, who is the Economy Minister. They sit down and they agree for a spending plan of 35 billion Reichsmark to be spent on the military over the next eight years. This breaks down to 4.5 billion Reichsmark per year. By comparison, the Weimar Republic had been spending less than 1 billion, so it's a 400% increase. Fuck me. Yeah. And I understand how they've planned on funding yet. <laughs> this is where it gets really interesting. So their total GDP per annum is about 43 billion Reichsmark. So they're planning on spending 10% of GDP just on the military. The only comparison for a capitalist economy in peacetime is like the USA in the 1950s, like at the height of Cold War paranoia. Yeah. I was going to say, because they're only on like 5% now, aren't they? 6% maybe? Or something like that. It's crazy spending. Yeah. The economy could not pay for this. So, like you just said, how are they going to pay for it? They couldn't. So, what they did is they completely withdrew military spending from having any sort of public or official oversight. And what they would do is they would pay for the um, to the military suppliers in a separate currency. And this is where they got the MIFO bills. So we've talked. So I know. I know about this. I've mentioned these before. What do you know about episodes. these? What do you know? So my understanding is, it's like a bunch of made-up secret currency that's essentially backed by nothing but itself. Yeah. So basically, like, oh, it doesn't the... really make any sense. And it's not so like a promise that once everything's done, then obviously they're going to be making more money off. Yeah. It's basically a system of IOUs. So yeah. what they did is they get like the major defence contractors to make this front company, which is called the, here comes my German, Metallurgische Forschungsgesellschaft, which means Society for Metallurgical Research. I had a good shaft in there somewhere. There's a lot of that in German. <laughs> so they would make the military industrial complex would set up this like shell company. They put their money into it. Then that company issues bills which are used to pay the military contractors. So they're basically paying themselves with bills against this fictional company. The whole thing is backed by like the Reichsbank. So if the theory is you have a MIFO bill, you can take it to the central bank and they will cash it out like it was a Reichsmark note. But the whole thing is like just a fucking Ponzi scheme shell fund bullshit financial trick. And it's basically IOUs owed by the person that's drawing the IOU. It's very yeah. strange. Effectively a second currency. But because it's backed by the Reichsbank, they basically enter circulation. And this is how they will pay for rearmament. Rearmament, like, you know, we compare. We saw one billion was being put into uh, work creation four and a half billion per year for rearmament. The the priority is totally different. Yeah. So, Erhard Milken, who is the head of the air ministry, and Goering, who's the professional head of the Luftwaffe, they plan that the Luftwaffe... On, what's the difference? Uh, one's political, one's military. Okay. They plan for an increase from 200 planes to 2,000 planes by 1935. So in 18 months. The army plans two phases of expansion. 
Phase one is that they will have a defensive army of 21 divisions, which is 300,000 men, ready by 1938 for a simultaneous defence against France and Poland. So their plan is by 1938 enough soldiers that they can defend on two fronts. Phase two is they will then expand that army to be able to go on the attack by 1941. Now, so this target then, sorry, you're going to say? No, no, no. No, you're sorry. Mate. No, <laughs> yeah. So this, this 1938 plan then, 300,000 men ready to defend. This in itself programs an escalation of foreign policy for this reason. Well, when, enough... you're pl- when you're planning for an invasion of all your neighbours, it's of a... Mm. I mean, you're in... You've sort of set your cards on... Well, I suppose well, everyone have... knows about this, don't do they? Oh, it's secret, yeah. Yeah. But even the defensive plans, the 1938 plan, 300,000 men able to defend on two fronts at once, this in itself sets Germany on the course to war in 1933 mm. already. To get that number of men... They must introduce conscription by 1935. Otherwise, they will not have enough men trained by 1938. Now. I thought you said 1940-something. Uh, 1938 is the defence plan, 300,000 men. And then phase two is to be able to attack by 1941. Interesting. It's a year before some stuff happened, 1938, isn't it? Yeah. So you can see, like... Mm. They start off with an esca- with an offensive plan for 1941 and that gets moved forward as we go on. But the reason even the defence plan, even a defensive army is programming the, the uh, road to war comes down to the conditions of the Treaty of Versailles. Right? You have an area of Germany which is west of the River Rhine. And the conditions of the Treaty of Versailles says that all territory west of the Rhine or... 50 kilometres east of it, cannot have German soldiers stationed there. Hang on, give me that one with the measurements again. All land west of the River Rhine and all land 50 kilometres east. This is the industrial heart of Germany. This is cities like, you know, like uh, Germersheim and Cologne and Dusseldorf. The German army is not allowed to be in position to defend those cities. The industrial heart, the Ruhr, where the indust- where the iron and coal mines are, all of that industrial heart of Germany cannot be defended within the Treaty of Versailles. Okay. Without that industry, you cannot fight a war. If they don't have those factories, they will be out of a war very quickly. Therefore, Germany has to have taken control of the Rhineland and have you know, taken away that part of the Treaty of Versailles before 1937. If they're going to have that army ready to defend in 1938, they need weapons to have those weapons. The Rhineland must be secure in 1937. So what this means is Germany in 1933 has made the decision it's going to tear up the Treaty of Versailles. It is going to militarily confront France. It's going to say, we are tearing up Versailles. What are you going to do about it? Mm. So it's already programming for war. Third branch of the military, the Kriegsmarine, the Navy. Sorry, when, when yeah. was that as well? This is in 1933, June of 1933, five months after the Nazis come to power. So they hadn't openly militarised, but no. they were planning to. Already see, planning but, it and okay. already making a plan that would inherently involve war with France. Okay. So 
obviously for a war with France or Poland, you need an army, you need an air force. You don't need a navy. But the head of the Kriegsmarine, a guy named Eric Rader, he kind of manipulates Hitler. He's saying to him, like, you, you know, Versailles Treaty says we can't have this. You can't accept that, can you? We mm. have to have this. And he argues for big spending to overturn Versailles. So, the German Navy of the First World War, at the end of the war, is interned by the British, and it sinks itself in port before it can be turned into war prizes, right? So the Germans have basically zero navy in 1933. He plans for eight battleships. The Treaty of Versailles allows a maximum of six. By comparison, the UK has 15. So he wants to build 15, uh, 50% of the Royal Navy's battle fleet. Hang on, so he wants to break the treaty just to build still not enough to defeat the British? Yes. Not alone just the British, the French who is also planning on attacking. Yeah. Bit of a weird weird plan. If you're an admiral, you want to have battleships because you're not a real admiral if you haven't got a battleship. Yeah, but it's still not enough to win. Like, planning to build enough not to win. Well... The logic is the British have to spread their forces, right? The British mm. have to defend. They have to defend Canada and Australia. The they empire. Have to defend their position. Exactly. The glorious empire. Whereas Germany only has to have enough ships in the North Sea. Yeah. Germany can win with less ships. But it doesn't stop there. He also wants free aircraft carriers. These are so new that they aren't mentioned in the Versailles Treaty. He wants eight heavy cruisers. Germany is allowed six. He wants 48 destroyers. Germany is allowed 12. Big spending. He wants 72 submarines. Germany is allowed zero. They are specifically banned from submarines. And they went really heavy on the submarines. Yeah. All of this building would not be ready until 1949. So, already, 1933, German planning makes no fucking sense. The army and the air force are planning for a war that could start in 1938. The Navy is planning for one in 1949. Like, where is the connection? Yeah. But they have, each of these departments, by the end of things, have their own, like, very unique figurehead, don't they? Yeah, they are always fighting against each other. Like, Hitler does this deliberately. The reason being, if the army, the military is coordinated and they have a single head, then, you know, they have someone to challenge point if they have three different heads fighting each other for resources and the person who gives them stuff is Hitler more power to Hitler so I was keeping all this on the down low then because obviously this is a big operation to try and keep secret well I mean the short answer is that he isn't like <laughs> the scale of the build up so big that intelligence agencies from other countries are picking it up like the French know what's happening so I mean you remember the context of the early 1930s, people are talking seriously about disarmament, permanent peace and so on. After, by 1934, the French are like, no, no more discussions with you. We know that you're preparing for war. So by 1934, it's out in the open, pretty much. It's also one thing which is kind of... A, a sort of unusual thing is that Hitler, after a point took the opposite he didn't try and hide it he like exaggerated what he had 
And this was really effective because no one had ever done this before. Normally countries tried to hide their new weapons, new equipment. Hitler would do things like have the same plane flying around ten times to make it look like he had ten of them. Like, after a point, Hitler took the size of his army and used it as a tool to try and intimidate other countries. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, so we already see then. So we're in 1933 and already the military spending is ramping up. In 1934, 50% of government spending on goods and services was going to the military. Wow, that's so un- unsustainable. <laughs> it gets worse. 1935, that's up to 75% Fuck. of spending is on the military. Like, it's it's hard to think of another country which is doing something similar. Like, to compare it to the modern Russian government, which is, you know, fighting a war, where they're spending one-third of government spending is going on the military. Germany... It, five years before the war starts is spending 75% (laughs) on the military. It's fucking incredible number, isn't it, really? Yeah. Like, for a country that's at peace, it's unbelievable. And it's like, we're going to get there, but, like, people talk about, oh, the incredible success of the Germans in the first years of the war is because they had so much, you know, brilliant officers, brilliant tanks. No, if you've spent five years spending 75% of your economy... Yeah, on you're gonna the be military, prepared. you're going to be good. So that we get back to the point then, of was all of this Nazi shit good for the economy? Because that's like the thing that that Hitler was good up until blah 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 argument rests on. Yes, the economy is improving in the early 1930s, but it was already improving, and it they was already... improving on a lie of yeah. the, the MIFO bills. Exactly, like. By 1935, the economy had recovered to where it was in 1928. But exactly the same thing had happened in the US, and the US wasn't doing this. Mm. You know, 70% of government spending, uh, 70% higher government spending year on year because they're spending on the military. 25% of industrial output, everything made in Germany, one in four of it is going into the army. Like, it's completely unsustainable. And we're less than two years into the Nazi regime. And years before they're planning on going to war. Yeah. You know, if you're the head of the Navy, this is like 15 years before you're planning the war. It's almost like some of those Prussian ideas are like slipping in, but they just don't know how to actually implement them like the Prussians did. I think it's the thing of like the, the German, the Nazi regime, it's like for them, economics do not matter. The only yeah, thing that matters is lines on a map and tanks. It's Madness. the only thing that matters is, oh, the economy will fix it later. So, to kind of conclude my point, I will say that Hitler's economic miracle, or whatever you want to call it, is not only a complete sham, but it was like an unsustainable disaster. Like, if they hadn't gone to war, the whole fucking thing would have come down within a matter of years. Like, you cannot sustain 75% of government spending is on the army. It's the same as, like, basically the conclusion of last episode... It's just fake, isn't it? It ain't real. Yeah. Like they've just, it's not real. Yeah. Like completely. their whole, it's a, it's a fucking tower. It's a tower of lies, man. It was, yeah, I think you're right. The whole to system like, is. You're right when you pinpoint the Mifo bill. It's like the the perfect example of it. Companies making a shell company to pay themselves to do, it's just insanity. Yeah. <laughs> So I think we'll wrap up there for 
this week. Next time, what we'll do is we'll look at how fi- we'll look at the first uh, international crisis that Hitler's faces, and we'll look at how the uh, the rearmament like just escalates out of control. Is that all then, bruv? There was a lot of a lot of lies there, isn't there? There's a <laughs> lot of lies in this system that they're trying to play us. Yeah, like I think the main takeaway from this is Nazi Germany not a good model for a country. Nah, it's not, is it? <laughs> well, you're living in your, you know, in Hitlerberg, in your house that has no electricity or sewage. <laughs> you have to shit into your own mouth. <laughs> it's not a fucking good, good place to live, you know. I won't be buying a Hitlerberg property any time. <laughs> well, then, bro, cheers for that. That was fucking decent. Uh, thank you everyone for listening as always you've been great thanks for tuning in till the end thank you Uh, for listening Um, as always if you have any questions or you'd like to talk to us you'd like to shout at us tell us something wrong you can reach us on twitter if twitter's always x now isn't it well then it's still called twitter I think x is just a symbol he hasn't decided has he Uh, if you want to go to gzeet you can reach us at Makers of History, or if you would like to talk to us on a civilised platform, you can email us at uh, wearemakersofhistory at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback, any questions, any any corrections. Or if anyone has figured out the mystery of why the second Hitler book didn't get published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you want to get us directly, just call 999 if you're in the UK, and that's a big fuzz. They'll send me right there. <laughs> the fourth emergency service. <laughs> For those, <coughs> for those emergencies that don't quite need police, ambulance, or fire brigade, or lifeguard uh, service, <laughs> I'm here for you. <laughs> just, just, no, no, no. Yep, I need big fuzz, and I'll, I'll sort you out. Don't remember. Well, that's imaginable sort of emergencies, though. The worst and most powerful kind of emergencies. I think, I think it'd be like, I'm stuck in the washing machine and I don't have a step, bro. Can you send me a <laughs> Oh, I got my thumb stuck in a greyhound. That's <laughs> <laughs> why you're not allowed down the dog track. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. I'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.